welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for October 2010. I am a writer, hyphen critic, hyphen inventor of Facebook, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... I am a writer, hyphen director, hyphen jilted CFO of Facebook, hyphen three-piece suit wearer, Paul Anthony Nelson. And our guest today is... I'm Rochelle Semenovich. I'm um, AFI editor, hyphen big issue film reviewer, hyphen harried mother who never sees enough films to feel like I'm justified to call myself a film critic, hyphen addicted Facebook user. Nice. Nice time. <laughs> now, the films of October. There were many. They were numerous. I'm going to kick off with, uh, just because I wrote all these down alphabetically, I'm going to kick off with Buried. Now... Who saw Buried? And judging by the sad looks on everybody's faces, I'm guessing nobody did. No. I'd, 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 yeah, I'd be forced to block my ears throughout this entire review because I'm dying to see it and missed it. I've been busy. You haven't seen it, Rochelle? No. no. Okay, well, all you need to know is it's, uh, it's pretty much the film Roger Corman has been trying to make his entire life. It's, uh, it's you know, high concept. It's, it's a bit B-movie, but it works start to finish. Uh, it's got a few detractors, but I I loved every moment of it. I think it's uh, really fantastic. Uh, it's it's got a, it's really clever the way they're able to keep the pace going and make it feel fresh, given it's ninety minutes set inside a box. So uh, I'm going to recommend that. I'm going to go ahead and recommend that. Cool. Is it, it like yeah? Okay. Um, I was thinking the absence of boobs. Do they make it? You know, is it quite a Roger Corman film? <laughs> it's half a Roger Corman <laughs> film. <laughs> Clearly. Yes. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Sorry, is it Roger. claustrophobic? Is it is it too claustrophobic? It's uh, it is claustrophobic for some. Um, uh, many people have had trouble with that. Uh, I didn't. I, I don't know. Maybe it's it's because I'm usually a bit disconnected. I can always. There are part times, and I always deny that I do this, but there are times where I think, oh God, look at the way they would have shot that because they're, they're sort of dolling around him and they must have been putting the parts of the, and <laughs> taking the bits of the coffin out to get that dolly right. And uh, yeah, don't tell anyone I actually do that because I always deny that I do that when I watch a film. Uh, secret show. Exactly. Chloe... Chloe, the uh, do you speaking, see that myth? Speaking of boobs, sorry. Yes. Um, uh, no, I didn't see the myth, but I've heard a bit about it. It's uh, look, it's it's tough. It's not it's not great. It's it's very much a schlocky melodrama, and schlock is the word I'm going to use to describe every film today. It's it's one of those films that doesn't actually make any sense until you realise that it's a remake of a French film, and then you go, oh, now it now the whole thing makes complete sense because it feels like a remake of a French film that. And it feels like the original was much better. The original being uh, Natalie. I've seen the original. How and does I that, want does to that see work? Chloe. Uh, yeah, I think it does. I think it does. But from what I hear, uh, Chloe has much more of a kind of erotic um, relationship between the two women mm. in this one. Whereas in... Um, more so than the French one. Well, I, I think it's more implied mean. and more... Mm. I mean, it's... Yeah, I think it's more psychological and... Um, yeah, but it's an intriguing theme, and I seem to remember your review for the big issue, Lee. You oh, said something right. about take someone you love to mistrust, or something like that. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've got about that. See yeah, it. take someone you love to see mistrust. it with someone you distrust. <laughs> yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, Pull quote. Yeah, you're not going to be with them at the end of the film, but you'll have a great time. Now, City of Final Destination, um, which was. It wasn't great, but it was the best of the Final Destination films. Mm, was Tony Todd in this one? Uh, no, not this one. No, it's no. no it's, uh, it's, it's the merchant... Good of Anthony Hopkins to step in for him, though. It was, yes. yes. I wouldn't have expected to see him in one of these films. But um, 
It's uh, it's a merchant ivory film without uh, without the merchant. Always without the <laughs> yeah. ivory. One of them. Now you got me confused. No, yeah. I, no, I think it's without the merchant. Okay. I mean, yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's really clunky. Uh, it's the, the the dialogue really stands out. You know, there's some really strangely uh, expository dialogue. So, how are you doing with your uh, art dealership? After all, you have been doing it for the past 20 years. <laughs> really? All right. I would have done a second pass on that line, but... Um, Wait while I take that down. Yeah. <laughs> but it become important later. It's got some great actors in it, but it really it just clunks along like a square wheel. And uh, it's a shame, because I, I like Merchant Ivory. Mm. Um, it's got an amazing cast, though, from what I've seen. It's got the it Anthony Hopkins and Laura Linney and... Alexandra Lara Marie, who I really like. Or is it Alexandra Marie Lara? Uh, is she, yeah, I think I know who she is. She was great in mm. it. Yeah, it's, look, it's a good cast. Yeah, she's in Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll and Control. And, yeah. Right, unfortunately the lead actor is um, a guy who just, he just has this over-earnestness. Just like he thought, I'm going to play this character earnest and wide-eyed. And that's the one note he plays the entire thing. Who was think, that? I can't even remember his name. I, I haven't seen him anything else, but he's just, uh, he ramps it up to 11. You don't believe that he could actually get an art grant, let alone, you know, put on a pair of pants in the morning. He's just, he just really doesn't look that competent. He's all doe-eyed and so on. But um, I'm doing all the talking. What yeah. have you guys seen? I'm just, I'm just going to... I'll rush out and see that. Um, <laughs> no, no, keep going. I'm sure we'll get into something soon. All right. Paranormal Activity 2. Uh, I have not seen that. You have not seen that? No, I didn't like the first one. I see you had notes there. That's all I thought you had. Oh, no, that's, um, uh, that, that's spilling over from red. Well, that, well, that's what I did see. Yeah. I did see Paranormal Activity 2. And, I mean, look, I did enjoy the first film. I thought it was a little funhouse ride. Um, and I, I kind of like the, the kind of plucky funhouse bravado as well. I like the fact that they, they made it for, you know, a credit card and... You know, mm. and, and and made quite a sort of jumpy little film out of it. It's you know you watch it for you watch it with an audience who are into it, and it's a hell of a lot of fun. Um, doesn't reinvent the wheel or do anything crazy. It's just yeah, it's it's a ghost train. This the sequel is a direct repeat of everything. It runs all of the playbook from the first film. Right. Every, like you can tick off the scares in this film that were in the first. Mm. It's basically the it's the first one with a baby and a dog. And that's, that's about all they change. I've heard of some hysterical reviewers overseas compare, like bringing up names to compare it to like Pedro Costa and uh, Brian De Palma and, and Bill Viola and so forth. And it's kind of like, um, I think they're just looking for sensational pull quotes in order to pull in internet traffic because it's none of right. those things. It's a direct ripoff of the first. It does it reasonably well, but yeah, it's kind of like same old, same old. There are no surprises. I'm getting uh, I'm getting a bit over the found footage films. Mm. Uh, the only one I've seen work in the last year or two has been uh, Lake Mungo, uh, which I which I absolutely love. Yeah, same um, here. That was a great film. Mm. It didn't get seen by nearly enough people. It should have had the numbers that Paranormal Activity got because I thought it was vastly superior. Um, yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, but uh, okay. Well, that's. Um, Oh, exactly what I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, now you've okay. What else that you've seen? Uh, uh, let me in. What was that like? See, I, I don't feel I need to see Let Me In because I've seen Let the Right One In. Mm. It's mm. different. Have you seen? Did you see Let Me In? No. No. It's it's. Uh, I know it's both identical and very different from the first film. And if you think that makes no sense, you're right. It doesn't. Um, but some some bits are absolutely identical. You can tell he was pausing on the DVD, on his portable DVD player, and going, that's the shot I'm going to get. Although, I'll just flip it. I'll do left to right instead of right to left, and that'll be my take on it. 
the the film is at its worst when it's doing the exact same as the as the first film. Um, but there is, are some bits that work. Sorry, is that no. is it at its worst because it's just a replica? I mean, if someone hadn't seen the first film, would this be uh, a good English language kind of uh, version to see? That's a that's a great question, and I I don't know because I I went in with that mindset of knowing the first film so well. Uh, look, I think it does work on its own terms, but I think uh, the bits where they replicate those moments from the first film or from the original, sorry, are I don't think they don't work because I know the original. I think they don't work because there's no energy behind them. Mm. And he's not, he hasn't got this great idea. He's just, he didn't have a great idea. So he's copying the first one. Um, and the best moments are when he had a great idea, when he actually thought of something himself. And you can tell, you know, Matt Reeves, who speaking of found footage did Cloverfield, which I, I really didn't like at all. Uh, aside from one or two, one or two moments, you know, this really felt like he had some great ideas mm. Is Cody oh, Smith McPhee any good? He's great. He's yeah. he's usually the best thing about the film. Any he's film, in. yeah, <laughs> she, uh, he's great. And uh, Chloe Moretz from uh, Kickass is uh, she's fantastic as well. So yeah, on that on that level, it's perfectly cast. Mm. Yeah. So how was how was Red? Uh, Red was kind of fun. Had a great cast. Uh, you know, you know the Bruce Willis, Morgan Freeman, uh, John Malkovich, Helen Mirren, blah blah blah. Uh, lots of great people in it. And it's a bit of fun, but it's not nearly as funny as it thinks it is. Okay. It thinks it's very, very funny, and there are moments where it pauses for laughter after jokes that don't mm. work. Um, i got to say, the big surprise uh, was Carl Urban. Yeah. Because he was given... I've always liked Carl Urban, but he was given the most boring role in the whole thing. He is the, uh, the, the immaculately suited CIA agent out to get, you know, he's... You're never quite sure if he's a good guy or a bad guy, but he's pretty much playing the antagonistic role. And he's meant to be the white bread guy, the boring guy. And he, he steals the show. Mm. Um, uh, other, look, I'm just well, going to give let's it just run a bit of lip service to Genius Within, The Inner Life of Glenn Gould. Fantastic documentary. Uh, really, a bit slow in the second half, but it's uh, it was really, really good, really informative and, in, and engaging. And Made in Dagenham, which even if it was bad, it has Sally Hawkins in, so I'm sold. Yeah, it can't be bad. <laughs> no, but it was uh, good. It was it was one. It was really weird because it's like them. They took uh, gritty social realism and then glossy Hollywood films and found the exact center point between the two, mm. and it works. It really works. It's not too toy. Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Okay. Not for me. I do like a bit of twee. The Town. Did anyone see The Town? No, but I yes, wanted to. Yes, I did. You hey! Did? <laughs> there we go. Uh, the Town is Ben, F ben Affleck's uh, second film as director. Mm -hmm. His first one was Gone Baby Gone. And I thought it was really, really quite well done, even though the plot is not original at all. But the mm. bank heist sequences were really nicely handled and... Um, Rebecca Hall as the bank manager is a really beautiful, open-hearted performance. She's great. She's yeah. always, yeah. What's my man Draper doing? Oh, yes. Yes. How could we forget? <laughs> How uh, could we forget? The handsome John Hamm. The man's man's man. Mm. He is the um, FBI agent who's trying to bring down this gang of bank robbers. So John Hamm is um, roughing it up a bit. He has his beard growing, mm. you know, a little bit of... Um, two-day growth happening. Mm. He's tough. He swears. He's a little bit sweaty. And um, he has a Boston accent in one scene. I noticed. <laughs> oh, no. Really? Yeah. There's one scene where he suddenly realised he should have a Boston accent, and it just appears. I didn't notice that. Do you think that was the first scene shot? <laughs> it might have been the last scene shot. Like, oh crap! Here's what I haven't been doing. <laughs> I liked it. I really, really liked it. But it was. I felt it was too aware of 
the films that came before it. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of parts where I was just going, I know which film that's from. I know which film that's from. And you've just sort of melded them together. That said, yeah, the bank uh, heist sequences are really well done. And Apart I, from the shootout at the end where it just goes a bit mental yeah, with the machine bit, guns. Yeah, it kind of went on a bit. What film are we in now? Now, Summer Coda. <laughs> Australian film. Oh, Jesus. Uh, we, is this that Idiot Grey's movie? I, like, I don't... I haven't heard of like, who directed what? it. Like, uh, And he's doing crappy podcasts too, like seriously. He's like, really what? debasing himself, yeah. isn't he? Uh, it's uh, difficult, <laughs> isn't it, when we're all very um, fond of Richard Grey? And... It is. We're all friends with him. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and my girlfriend is the publicist for the film. Yeah. So just, just put all that up front. Disclaimer. I've got to put all the disclaimers yes. out there. Um, so... Look, but the truth is, if I didn't like the film, I would say so. I just feel really bad about it. But no, but in fact, it it's comes really easy. It's, it's a novel. lovely film. It's a really lovely film. I'm a, a huge fan of it, and uh, I was quite quite relieved that <laughs> that it was so good because I was like, please be good, please be good, and uh, and it was, and it's it's just got this wonderful, this wonderful um, you know European sensibility to it. It's it's shot Australia and made it look like something something new. And I really, I really liked that. Um, yeah, sorry, now it does look yeah. like I'm, I'm scrambling. No, 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 no. It, it's, yeah. it's got a European feel, but yet it's so incredibly Australian, mm. but not in that in-your-face type way. It's just, it moves at a beautiful, languid pace. Um, you, mm. you, it looks stunning. Like, it's, it's set a, in Mildura, we should probably say, for people who haven't seen it. Yes. Um, orange In pickers. the orange groves um, with an orange... Grove farmer played by Alex Dimitriades mm. who um, picks up a hitchhiker, American hitchhiker played by Rachel Taylor, Taylor yep. um, and a very kind of delicate, gentle romance develops in well, the orange yeah. That's extremely tentative. <laughs> but you're not sure if it's going to happen. Uh, yeah. One, one thing I, I really liked about it is that, because she's there for her father's funeral, she's come back to Australia, uh, hasn't been there since she was about nine, I think, her character, and... Um, what I really liked about it is there's a point about 20 minutes in where there are three clear options. She can stay with her family and try to connect with them. She can go back to the States or she can track down Dimitriadis and see him again, his character again. And there are three different films that could be told and each is as valid as the other and there's no inevitability to it. And you realize that you're just going on this journey with her. There's not some preset narrative that you're waiting for it to all unfold before you it could she could really go anywhere and that would be the film and i'm quite i was quite stunned by i mean i've only known rachel taylor from a role in transformers i'd mm. never seen her in anything else you yeah. didn't um, see that was it shutter or some sort of horror yeah. film set in japan centered on camera oh, okay sounds um, like Shutter. yeah i haven't yeah. seen that yeah um and she was fantastic like mm. it, like it seemed to me like a genuine star making performance like she just like lights up the screen every time she's on it she's gorgeous mm. and completely convincing and and you know thoughtful and tentative and um just and you know sweet and yeah just and she does really... that Naomi Watts thing of being playing a cold disaffected not disaffected but damaged character mm. who doesn't actually put you off you can actually you actually want to spend 90 minutes yeah. with her but she still she still has that you know keeping everyone at arm's aloofness yeah, yeah yeah no I thought she was fantastic she was the highlight that mm. her and the film's look mm. were the two things that really struck me out of the box mm. but um, oh and her accent I gotta say yeah 
she actually sounded like somebody who had spent the first nine years of her life in Australia and then moved to yes. the States. It was perfect. <laughs> yeah. She just let it slip to an Australian thing every now and then, and it was it was absolutely spot on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and everyone else is great. I mean, um, Alex is great. I think a lot of people I've talked to have just said it's so wonderful to see Alex Dimitriades playing a romantic lead mm. and a character that's not defined by his ethnicity, you know, as an Italian or a Greek or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just, you know, it's a It's a, a real leading man performance, yes. you know. Mm. Yeah. I'll tell you what I love about our Angus Sampson's character is that, like, he's really, you know, he's not... He is the comic relief, but not in the jokey, you know, making... You know, he's making wisecracks in the background. Angus Sampson's character actually... He thinks he's the romantic lead of the film. He doesn't think he's the, the wacky best friend. He's the star of his own film. And I, that's, an, that's one of the other things I love about it is that it could go in any direction. Mm. You know, there's a point at which I think, you know, if, if Rachel's character, if Heidi chose to go off with him, that would be a valid path for the film no, as well. No, I disagree. <laughs> well, yes, because Alex is the, plays the charming lead. But, um, but in Angus Sampson's character's story... That's that's what's oh, going to yes. happen. Yes, She's going to go off with him. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's a bit like life. Mm, exactly. Life, where the leads, where all the leads in our own stories. Whereas in films, supporting characters are clearly supporting characters, and they almost know they're supporting characters mm. in this weird sort of way. Um, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and that's that's one of the many things I loved about it. So mm. go see some Coda. Uh, now, the Social Network. Mm. Have we all seen the Social Network? Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, we have. Now. Um, a writer of not much note, a uh, director who hasn't got many yeah. credits to his name. Ne- never heard much from them. No, it is uh, my favourite screenwriter, my favourite living screenwriter with one of my favourite living directors. Uh, and so really, I, my expectations were pretty high. In fact, they were, if it had to be one of the greatest films I'd ever seen for, for me to be satisfied. And uh, those expectations were met. Okay, some of that is hyperbole, but I had very high <laughs> expectations and they were met. And I was very, very happy because it is an excellent film. It was, it was a nice relief to look at the credits rolling and think, damn, that was killer. Mm. Like, absolute, all killer, no filler, that was kick-ass. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah, because um, you're always, yeah, you're always really tentative. And there are so many films end up disappointing in some way, particularly mm. when you've got high expectations. And I tried to suppress those expectations as much as I could. Mm. But, you know, there comes a point where it's like, well, you know, this Sorkin and Fincher, man. Let's deliver. Let's you know. We've hoped for a uh, combination like this mm. for some time, and yeah, and it, and it absolutely delivers as um, as just an intriguing story. It struck me a little as some. Now, okay, you want to you want to. I'm struggling for words today. <laughs> um, you you want to start on with hyperbole? Yeah, I firmly believe a story like The Social Network would be a story Shakespeare would write if he were alive today. You took the words right out of my mouth. You're struggling really? for words and now you're taking them. For- no, I, uh, look, I've, I've often compared uh, Aaron Sorkin to William Shakespeare and that's, it sounds like such a trite, easy comparison because whenever there's a great writer, everyone always says Shakespeare. But the thing Shakespeare always did was he would take uh, these grand, pe- these uh, like kings and queens. Mm. He would tell stories about kings and queens but tell very personal stories that everyone can relate to. And in Sorkin's case, you know, billionaires, young billionaires, or the president of the United States, and, you know, these these large people suffering from uh, problems that everyone can relate to, and he does so with the most cracking dialogue. And it's uh, and that's exactly what, what Sorkin did with this. I mean, 
it's about the social network isn't about how Facebook got started. It's about the human condition, somebody trying to connect. And I, I, I look, I think the Shakespeare comparison is is apt. Mm. Mm. I mean, let, let's mm. say, like, nobody compares to Shakespeare. You well, know, Shakespeare is Shakespeare, God of the English language. But it's that kind of story. Yeah, it's all those things you said. It's a, to- it's a story of personal betrayal over an empire. Mm. It's... Um, it has supreme wit. It's it says something about where we are now and this current generation. Um, I'm speaking to someone about this the other day. It's kind of like Zuckerberg. I mean, for rightly or wrongly, um, due to his success and his line of work, he's a suitable uh, avatar for Generation Y as mm. there is a generation raised on technology that will be seen by history. I mean, you know, we don't want to generalize and we don't want to. You know, because mm. it's not the case. But Generation Y will be seen by history as a generation that's used its ease with technology to kind of bypass paying its dues, mm. to kind of to to kind of step into you know hack into a military database as an audition for a job to work you know coding for millions of dollars or whatever. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like it's that kind of that ease. Um, allows and the fact that so much of what they do is locked in a room and mm. it's it allows their social development to be a little stunted but he's a genius and i mean absolutely. we wouldn't want to say all generation y uh nerds are geniuses no, and absolutely. i think the interesting thing about this is that you know he is this incredibly brilliant young man and yet at his core there is a flaw in his character very shakespearean which mm. will be his undoing and it's his inability to deal with rejection his extreme immaturity Mm. and the thing that I found really um kind of interesting about this story is that when he gets all this success and he could have any girl he wants and he can he could be out partying he just stays in front of his computer Mm. continuing to I don't know code or whatever they do you can't be changed (laughs) like it's, it's it's like all this success and this online social network which is meant to transform the world doesn't actually transform who you are he's not very sociable yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) and it's great and look i mean i think you're absolutely right about uh you know paul talking about generation y and those things but they're also represented by the character of eduardo sanchez Mm. who is uh he's he's probably the most relatable character of the thing he's he's pretty much a good guy Mm. not quite a genius but he's aspirational in a very different way to zuckerberg and you know it's it's not one note. It's not saying everyone in this generation no, no, is exactly like that. Not. So yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah mm. let's not misrepresent it. Yes. Um, but yeah, look, um, I think I think October has overall been a really good month for films. Yeah, it's been. And so I recommend everyone go back in time a month and see all the ones we recommend. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Kevin Smith, upon the release of Cop Out uh, earlier this year, Cop Out was eviscerated by critics, and he used that. Op- he took the opportunity upon that reaction to um, get on Twitter and basically excoriate critics and bloggers worldwide, saying that they were at- basically they were going into his films predisposed to hate them, um, they were- and you know, getting paid to do so. And he was feeling that why are we inviting these people to not pay? for films that they're predisposed to hate and then going and hating them and spending their time thinking of creative ways to destroy them. And he proposed that the film would be better served getting 100, you know, random people to see it for free rather than people who are being paid to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Unfortunately, he erred by saying that those 100 should probably be his fans, <laughs> which would skew the results somewhat in his favour. And now with uh, he's going back to his indie roots with Red State, um, the film's, I think, pretty much self-financed. Um, yeah? Yeah, or yeah, no studio is backing it. It's completely off the grid. Hmm. Um, and now he's coming up with things like, well... He's not going. He's only going to let certain blog sites look at it before it comes out because most of them lie and get facts and misappropriate the facts and whatnot. Basically, promote it mainly through Twitter and you know do that thing where he invites a hundred of his fans to see it first off, cutting critics and bloggers pretty much out of the process, saying that they don't really matter to him. Now, the critical community on Twitter obviously blew up a little about this, or. Well, it's sort of, it was between half blew up about it and the other half were kind of like, we've heard this before and we're sick of this, sick of this tune. Mm. This long-winded introduction is getting me to the, my point that I think it's an interesting point that, it, like, I don't necessarily agree with the way Smith is going about it, but do critics matter in this day and age? I, uh, look, I think he's, what he's saying is ridiculous, but I will say this in his defence. There are a lot of crazy people out there who are biased and so on, and the problem with the internet... I've always said, look, the great thing about the internet is it gives everyone a voice. Uh, the only problem with that is it gives everyone a voice, <laughs> and everyone thinks they can be a film critic. Uh, yeah. You know, as many people have said, there are a lot of people out there who think The Dark Knight is the greatest film ever, and that's the first, you know, film they've started with, and uh, they don't really have a sense of a film history, and there are a lot of people who go in biased, and they don't back up their opinions, and they just say, this thing sucks. There are a lot of people out there... I don't expose myself to that because I don't read those sites. Once I see a site like that, I avoid it in perpetuity. Um, I'm sure someone like Kevin Smith, who is looking for the responses that are out there about his films, he comes across them all the time. And those voices are probably overwhelming. You know, negativity, one negative opinion will overwhelm 99 moderate opinions. And that's good. And you remember the one negative one. But is his problem with the critics who review officially because it seems to be he's saying I don't want official critics to see my film I, I only want fans to see it or is his problem with with the kind of bloggerati who who are tearing him down he's the lumping un- them all in together yeah I That's feel a, a bit, bit of, of both. a problem mm, yeah in his argument yeah exactly yes. yeah I feel yeah I feel he's he has a problem with both I think his problem with the the bloggosphere is they're loud and uninformed and 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 make you know, half-assed judgments, as Lee was saying. And his problem with critics is they go into his films with a predisposed opinion, a predisposed bias, mm. and they're not really giving him a chance. Now, the problem is that this opinion has come out after Cop Out has come out, which was, by all reports, a pretty bad film. Yeah, look, yeah. I saw it. Now, to be honest, I don't think it's as nearly as bad as its detractors say, nor is it as good as its supporters say. Mm. It's just there. I see 20 films a year that are worse than Cop Out. You know, yeah. it's, it, but it, it's yeah. disingenuous on Smith's part to bad, come out after making The Devil, you know, what is generally considered to be a bad film, mm. to say that when it was critical opinion that, that made his career, mm. it was mm. critics seeing clerks. And this and, is the interesting mm. duality. You know, at, at Chasing Amy, you know, that got, a, that got hugely. Well, he, credit, he credits critic Janet Maslin with starting his career. Because she saw Clerks at one of the AF, you know, mm. American film market screenings, you know, because his producer's rep invited her, and um, she wrote a glowing review on the New York Times, and boom, a kickstart him, and he's always credited with that. So yeah, it yeah. seems like a weird mm. backflip, all of a sudden. That critic's okay, everyone else's, but it, it, yeah, it is weird because he's always felt like 
one of us. He's always, you know, he's mm-hmm. always tried to say, look, I'm one of the people. I'm a film fan who just got lucky. And, but he gets so angry and this rant is sort of, I, I feel like he's cocooning himself off a bit. And you just want to say, look, just make good films again. Mm. And look, I'm a huge Smith fan. You know, I, I loved Clerks too. I stayed till the end of Jersey Girl. <laughs> <laughs> and only hardcore fans would do that. Um, you know, I've got a lot of, lot of time for him. I really like Zack and Miri. I love uh, Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. You know, I like most of what he does. And mm. I've always got time for him. I'm dying to see Red State. Mm. Um, but I'm going to come out and say something a little bit radical, perhaps. Mm. But I think writers and filmmakers should never respond to their critics. Is that a little bit uh, contentious? But I no, just think I, I just think it doesn't look good. It no. never seems to work out well. I mean, I'm thinking of an author, Alain de Botton, who is supposedly this very chilled out philosophy dude who writes best selling kind of self help books. And he got a very bad review from, I think it was the New York Review of Books. And he went on to this guy's blog and said, I hope you die. I'm going to hate you till the day I die. And I will never forgive you for this. Um, I hate you. I hate you. And he's just wow. <laughs> he's just decimated his own reputation as a kind of guru for yeah. millions of people. And it just never looks good. I'm thinking of Jane Campion coming out and saying Adrian Martin was the grim hangman of Australian cinema. Which you know is a great line, mm. and maybe he was in some <laughs> ways. I'm not. I, I don't know. But Jimmy Jack's I, I just nephew think, to uh, Jim Shambury at the AFI. Exactly. Is, uh, that I was don't. A poor moment. I don't think it <laughs> ever really looks good for an artist to exactly. to come out and do this. It looks petulant. It looks childish. It looks a little bit needy. Um, they should just focus on making better art. Or That's just. True. Or yeah. No, I do. I do agree. I think to a point. I, yeah, you've, you've got to like, I guess, the Stanley Kubrick kind of approach. You put it out there to be consumed and you step back and start working on the next one. And whatever mm. they say, they say, and whatever will be, will be. You're focused on what's next. Mm. That's probably everybody comes out of it. Well, certainly the film, the filmmaker or the creative artist comes out of it looking better for that. With, with Kevin's case, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I, like, I'm a fan of Kevin Smith. I like him as a person. I listen mm. to his smodcast. So used to read his tweets, but he tweets way too much. Um, too and, much hockey. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and like, he seems like a nice guy. And, yeah, yeah. you know, see, but I think what Kevin needs to do is stop reading the internet. Mm. Because stop it, Googling himself, yeah, really. Just stop yeah. it. It's like, it's, and he's, uh, he's actually said on Smodcast, his wife has told him again and again, <laughs> just step away from the computer. Don't look, but he can't help himself. I think, and that yeah. gives rise to moods like this. It's like, well, any wonder he he unleashes every so often because if you were reading torrents, and yeah, 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 bad stuff of yourself on the internet, like there comes a point you just have to unplug it. I think it's bothering because we think of Smith as a really smart guy. I think he's an incredibly smart guy, and I like him a lot. And what he said was almost objectively stupid like it's you can almost say look mathematically i can prove that what you just said was kind of a silly thing uh whereas we wouldn't bat an eyelid if it was something someone like uv ball uh but because because we i don't know look i have a very high opinion of kevin smith which is why i 
I am so befuddled by these mm. recent statements. And what it comes down to is is that is that I do like him, which is why I'm so disappointed in in this rant mm. of his. And uh, yeah, I, I, sorry, Michelle, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think it shows that no matter how smart you are, i.e., Mark Zuckerberg, mm. um, at heart we're all we're all children with very fragile egos, and none of us take criticism or rejection very well. And I do. Why would you say it's, that? It's like you know, emotionally, we all operate at a toddler level sometimes when things go badly mm. and it's just not good to put that on show no. on the internet True. particularly creatively too because a creative endeavor is something that comes out of you it's your you know it's your it's the sum total of it's a part of you mm. you know it's a it's a product that is uniquely you and when you put it out there and it's summarily rejected that's got to be a tough thing to take you know and you're absolutely right it's like you can have that reaction just don't put it on the internet like like Mark Zuckerberg at the start of Social Network when he's blogging about his girlfriend being, you know, and and it's like you just don't... That's the point where you step back and don't mm. do that mm. and complain about it to your friends, complain about it to your wife and your house, all that sort of thing. Have that reaction because it's perfectly human. But don't broadcast. Now, Rochelle, you have picked as your Filmmaker of the Month... Paul, do you want to do I'll it? do my sting. Do it. The Hellas for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month. I love it when he does that. <laughs> Who have you picked? Who is your director? I've picked Sophia Coppola, and there are a couple of reasons why I chose this auteur. When you initially came to me asking me to speak about someone I liked, I uh, thought about how much the uh, film reviewer, film nerd culture we participate in, all of us, is so competitive and so not competitive but it's it's very cerebral it's very much about facts and statistics and who's seen what and how much we've all seen and you know if you've seen the early work and did you know who was the editor or the cinematographer on that and it's quite analytical and I just wanted to go with something very for a better word girly emotional sensual beautiful pretty um and I wanted to talk about a female director of significance and uh she is one, she's fairly young. She's not yet 40. Uh, she's won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for Lost in Translation. She was one of the three women who've been nominated for Best Director for that film. And she just most recently won the Venice Golden Lion for her film Somewhere. So she's one of the few women directors who are really making their mark on the international stage. Unfortunately, uh, she is one of so few. But um, So few a Coppola. No? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, oh, wow. I'll come on. Quick, all... Rochelle, keep driving. You're all thinking okay, that. Okay, okay. Um, she is Don't obviously stop. of the um, Hollywood royalty that is the Coppola family, so she's had certain advantages. She's obviously been mentored and influenced by her father and um, other family members but she has her very own signature uh, style and it's it's very visual it's um, it's almost European in the way that it's it's not so much about narrative as about ambience and um, creating an experience in the viewer and um, yeah, she's she's interesting. She's not necessarily my favourite female director, but she, she, the images from her films stay with me, and I think there's. Uh, I wanted to investigate that, and I also wanted to interrogate that question. Um, there's a criticism of her work that a lot of people make that she's all style and no substance, and 
uh, I would argue, along with others who've argued this, the style is the substance. The style is what what she is investigating. It's it's about mood. So that's why I chose her. Excellent choice. <laughs> wow, I love it. And yeah. I agree with that. I agree with the style is the substance. I think that's. I'm a huge fan of Sophia Coppola, and yeah, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into these. Yeah, I think she's naff. No, actually, she's. <laughs> I just wanted to be the dissenting voice. Well, um, yeah. No, I. She's long been my favourite um, female director, and mm. you hate to make those call it. You know, those are oh, female and male director, not sort of thing. But as you say, there are far too few female directors. I really wish there were more. They need so to be they more. stand out a bit. Is that what you? Yeah, 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 and that's the thing. And and so few of them get to forge regular careers, mm. you know, and get to make more than a couple of films. So I mean. The fact that Sophia has has I mean she's you know pumps out one every three years or so which mm. is about normal for major filmmakers and you know it's, it's a very considered filmography as we'll see and mm. um, and yeah and to make such an impact and and making such fantastic films yeah that puts her at number one for me mm. um, yeah well, I guess we'll start at the start there. start with the uh, how about we start with Lick the Star oh that's yeah. a short have you seen this I no. have I have not. Uh, yeah, it's um, her short, which was um, now. I'm trying to. I'm not. It, she may have made it in film school. Um, I'm not sure. It actually features Peter Bogdanovich in a cameo. Right. Um, it's about. It. It actually does kind of. It almost seems like an audition tape for the Virgin Suicides in some way because it's about a bunch of. It's about a group of girls at a high school, but it's about the destructive nature of cliques mm. and about how a girl can be. You know. A, bitch slash god one day and then ostracized ostracized and mm. driven to uh, suicide attempt the next and um and it does it with a fairly kind of unsparing um eye like she doesn't she doesn't make judgments it's just like this is the way it goes and this is the and and you know you, you it's kind of got a you reap what you sow element to it but it's got but it also doesn't really let people off as well it's kind of like um you know a lot of girls do do this, you know. Mm. This is just this is this is the nature of the beast, and this is what can happen. But it's um, it's all in black and white, which is interesting. I, uh, she's not shown in that sense, and it's not as lush as her other films. But there are some there are some lush shots that sort of give um, uh, foreshadow the career that's going to come. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, like it, it looks very much like student work, but it mm. is um, but it's interesting nonetheless. And yeah, there there seems to be a few motifs that. Are, will soon to be echoed in Virgin Suicides. Mm. I was, uh, and I was really blown away by Virgin Suicides when I first saw it. Mm. And, and in particular, I do remember the moment where I was sold on her, which was uh, the opening titles. Mm. And it's just that unusual thing of uh, the same title appearing over and over again, almost like a girl has written it in a notebook mm. over and over. And it was just, it was so evocative and it felt so original and it it was thematically relevant and it was just lots of things at once and as you say it was really pretty because of that beautiful air soundtrack yes over the top and it was just everything at Playground once Playground love that yeah song that how just, amazing is yeah. that soundtrack <laughs> yeah so punctuates that film and just yeah uh just the opening with the um the various scenes of suburbia but all immaculately immaculately framed and mm. and um with that soundtrack over and then you punctuate it with that well i guess you've never been a 13 year old girl 
boom, and then and then it's on. It's just such a great mm. opening sequence. When it first came out, I was about 24, 25. And it was a time when I was mainly, I guess, into genre films and, you know, narrative-driven stuff. And this was one of the first times I can remember that a mood piece really hit me. Mm. Mm. It, it felt like it was, the, yeah, it was the first, uh, the first one I, I really um, kind of connected with. It's a, yeah, it's a great mood piece. It's very much about mood. It's a little unsatisfying as well, which is something I often find with Coppola's films is I'm I'm left just wanting something else, something more. And I think that's probably something she's trying to evoke, that feeling of, of incompleteness, alienation, yeah. not being able to grasp the meaning or the connection. And the film really does strongly evoke a lost age too. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's it, you do feel that sense of ele, uh, elegiac nostalgia. Mm. Uh, it's. I think it's set so in the nineteen seventies, nineteen seventy five ish in Michigan, and um, there's a lot of shots of the sunlight through the trees and beautiful lawns, like old Polaroid photos. Almost. Yes, mm. yes. Yeah, it's such a confident film, and it's it was. Hell of a debut. Yeah, amazing. But um, for my money, it's lost in translation. Second film out of the gate that is her masterpiece. Okay. I cannot get enough of this film. Really? I absolutely agree. Um, lost in Translation was one of my top ten films of last decade. Right. Um, I thought it was amazing. It mm, just, mm. And I watched it again early this year after not seeing it for a while, and it touched me all the same ways. It was. It's just... Bill Murray, just with a look, just tears you apart. He's um, a clown, isn't he? I'd never really thought of him that way, but he's he's the melancholy clown. Yeah. And just even, I, I think the scene that um, with him trying to shoot this commercial for whiskey, he's this kind of washed up actor who's gone to Japan where he's still a big celebrity and, and he's being directed by this Japanese director trying to work through a translator, mm. asking him to give all these different poses or faces or um, kind of... I don't know. He's and he just turns it on like mm. the consummate professional clown that he mm. is, and it's just hilarious. And and there are so many moments of Bill Murray's kind of physical comedy here. Yeah, it's mm. very understated. There are a few more visually beautiful films than Lost in Translation. Mm. I feel like um, it makes Tokyo look like a wonderland. Um, mm. It's and yet a, a, not a. It's still kind of a melancholy wonderland. Mm. There's there's a lot of greys and greens and it's a little bit alien. It, mm. It's it's difficult to connect. And I'm in that image of Scarlett Johansson walking through the crowd and she's apart from it, even though she's um, in the middle of all these people and all this traffic. Mm. She's alone. So there's and a loneliness about this that's, film. That's the thing. Yeah. Like Alice is Wonderland, you know, it's not all fun and games. Yes, know? true. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's the exactly the Disconnection same. of character that, uh, you know... Scarlett Johansson is experiencing is that is like one of the most prevalent themes it's almost like the theme that Coppola explores and I think Marie Antoinette you know love it or hate it it is you know her third film is all about it's just about one thing and it's about a character disconnected from the world um now just Mm. where do we because this really divided people Marie Antoinette where do we come down I love it it? I love it and I, I love it uh, now in a way I didn't love it when it first came out. I, I okay. was a little bit of kind of, oh, okay. I really enjoyed all the beautiful gorgeousness, the shoes and the cakes and the, you know, real post-punk soundtrack 
on top of this 18th century story was was interesting and fun, but I wasn't sure about it. But watching it, you know, several times since, each time I see more depth in it, mm. and it's it's not just about, um, you know, a very decadent queen who, you know, the last queen of France who said purportedly let them eat cake um it's it's about a young woman who is trapped in ritual and trapped in um you know a role that she didn't choose and Mm. she's trying to make the best of it and she's she's 18 for god's sake or Mm. less than that she's 14 when she gets married and her her role in life is to produce an heir and her husband can't get it up for her Mm. so it's it's like she's Frustrated, so she turns to well the equivalent of chocolate and dresses and shopping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I love it. I, I felt at the time I've not seen it since it felt like a very heavy-handed, um, bloated kind of um, <laughs> you know sort of Sophia Coppola basically saying this is me. I'm this person trapped in this world of privilege and 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 ritual and you know born into filmmaking royalty mm. and expected mm. to be you know I was put into a film and expected to be an actress that I wasn't mm. and okay. and everybody mm. destroyed I me. hadn't thought of it that and, way. and, and, <laughs> you know, and now I'm trying to forge this sort of new career it, it felt like a very which I I mean I do love it when an auteur makes parallels between their characters and themselves I mean mm. that's what auteurism is all about but it felt very heavy-handed to me and it just felt very elongated like it's it's interesting because there are other three films they're all very similar in terms of runtime and budget this was a lot more expensive and a lot longer and feels a lot longer i think i think sort of 95 to 100 minutes is about the right time for for, for sophia's films or if this is over two hours long it just felt really drawn out there's some great stuff about it i love um Asia argento's mm-hmm. countess and, madame uh, du barry yeah <laughs> there's yeah this and it looks amazing and there's some cool songs in the soundtrack and you know it's it this there's, there's definitely stuff about it to like but i just it felt for me very obvious and a bit bloated and empty at the time probably should revisit it look you're probably right about you know there being a, a big part of uh Sophia Coppola in that character but I I think even beyond that whether, whether that's true or not you know she is really interested in characters who just don't fit in mm. and she's just trying to as you say she's trying to live her life but there are obstacles and obstacles and obstacles in front of her that stop her from having the sort of life she wants and I love that uh, the unrest that comes, the rioting in France, we're as unaware of it building as she is. Mm. She doesn't realise it's coming until it's on her doorstep and we don't realise either. And it gives us a different perspective on, you know, a, a historical figure who is generally considered to be this horrible, uncaring person. And, you know, we're shown a side of her that she wasn't really prepared for it. She was too young. She didn't know what she was supposed to be doing. She was just completely enclosed in this court world, um, of Versailles, that's mm. where the majority of the film takes place. She she wasn't really allowed out. How mm. could she know? Yeah. Um, she she was completely preoccupied with with the role that she had in the court and becoming a mother. And um, you know, it was it was impossible for her. Real. I mean, I suppose there are those moments where her advisor, played by. Um, oh, um, Alan Partridge. Uh, <laughs> oh, Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan. That's yes. yes, tries to tries to educate her, and she's busy shopping. Mm. But I mean, I love the way Sophia Coppola introduces this character. With the the first scene has um, 
Kirsten Dunst as, as Marie Antoinette reclining on a couch and having shoes fitted and there's a beautiful pastry next to her mm. and she reaches out and takes a swipe of the icing on the cake and licks it and, you know, there's the heavy guitar chords of um, Gang of Fours, um, what's it called? Um, I can't remember what the song is now. Um, and it's, it's, it's post-punk. It's, it, they were a Marxist band. And, you know, the lines of the song are the problem of leisure, what to do for pleasure. And <laughs> then uh, Kirsten Dunst looks directly at the camera, you know, mm. makes eye contact and saying, this is what you think of Marie Antoinette well. Here we go. Yes. And then the film starts. So it's, it's making that kind of self-conscious, ironic commentary on history this mm. is a historical character and we're going to have fun with it yeah mm. yeah yeah no i agree no, i i only watched it recently and you know i really responded to it i've got a lot of, i've got a lot of time for it uh now something very exciting is uh thank thanks to universal and that was a, it sounds very commercial to say yeah. it, like, no, <laughs> thanks to universal no but they were very kind and they let us see uh Marie, An- uh, Marie Antoinette, again, Sophia Coppola's. They made us see Marie Antoinette again. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia Coppola's, sorry, her fourth film, Somewhere, which isn't coming out for a while. Uh, we Boxing were able day. to see this. Boxing Day. There you yeah, go. Boxing. Uh, we were able to see it early, and uh, so we can continue talking about mm. where she is now What's with her fourth film. Next? Right now, now, the good thing I will say up front that obviously nearly everyone listening to this won't have seen it yet. Yes. Uh, we won't spoil what happens but more importantly i don't think we really can spoil what happens because it's really not a plot driven film at all and uh so so don't worry we will uh we will avoid talking about plot points and there's the trailer you watch the trailer you'll get a perfect idea of what the film's about yes Mm. yes Mm. but what do we think of this because i think you know if marie antoinette divided people somewhere is going to divide everyone you know i think this is the more divisive film i think there are going to be people who hate it really hate it yeah i've got to say i was a little Mm, I don't want to say disappointed, but um, it wasn't it wasn't kind of what I was wanting mm. her to do next. It's very much a return to minimalism. It's saying Marie Antoinette was my cookies and cream, and now we're going to go back to bread and butter. And um, <laughs> it's it's really simple, pared back, um, handheld camera not much dialogue it's it's not as pretty vis- much just it's, two actors it's not as visually beautiful as yes that's films. what i noticed too it's it's the first film that's not all pretty it's not it's all very immaculate. purposeful though yeah the framing is off so much yeah. i get the yeah. feeling that it's like it's deconstructing that whole thing yes. i feel mm. like it's it's her it's returning. a reaction against that yeah mm. it's her returning to her familiar themes and style and really pairing it back but also beginning to deconstruct it and beginning to say you know what when the party's over this is what yes. This is what happens. Well, I you think know, we're all a little seedy, and we and, and we all have to work out what to do with our lives. Getting a little yeah. bit of a beer belly and um, not looking so good the morning after, mm. which is the Stephen Dorff character, who Johnny Marco, who is a is supposedly a famous actor who mm. lives in the Chateau Marmont hotel and entertains Hefner twins um, lies on his bed <laughs> getting drunk and falling asleep while they do a pole dancing routine for him. <laughs> Don't you love that Stephen Dorff is playing that character? I mean you would think that if you were casting this film you would go for actor baggage and you would get Brad Pitt to play that famous yeah. actor so we understand but or somebody so... that was famous during the 90s mm. big yeah. time and isn't there must as famous be lots now. Of them. But yes. we're so disconnected <laughs> like the, the film is about disconnection 
and that adds an extra layer of it where we don't feel connected to that world because Stephen Dorff is not. A f- I looked up his filmography. I think I've seen one of his films. Maybe mm. I can't even remember which one it was. Well, that's the thing. At first, I was I went through that same thing. Like yeah. the other um, when I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, wow, what a really great choice for a washed up act because you know he was some kind of. Indies, indie poster boy in the 90s. And the other day somebody asked me, what, what's he yeah, been in? me, I think it probably was. And I, I didn't know. <laughs> and I'm looking through his filmography, I'm going, yeah, like you. It's like, I've seen about five of his movies and Blade. Like, the villain in Blade yeah. is the biggest role he's had. I think that's the one I've seen, but I'm not even entirely sure I saw Blade. <laughs> that's, the, that's how memorable. But look, I, I honestly think Somewhere is almost the ultimate Sofia Coppola, if not film, then statement. Because, you know, if every single one of her films is about people disconnected from society... And from the world they're in, this is the perfect distillation of that to the extent where there's very, uh, there's almost no dialogue. There's really no story. And it's just that theme mm. of I don't fit into the world. And it's that theme. It's or like, rather, I no longer fit into the world. Yeah. And it's like she just set up that theme on, a, on, a, on, a, on an uh, easel and then filmed that. We should yeah. probably mention that the... The plot revolves around Johnny Marco having to look after his 11-year-old daughter, played mm. by Elle Fanning. Fanning. Fanning yeah. um, and it's it's about them kind of connecting. He's searching for something real. And all, all of her characters are searching for something real mm. they can latch onto. And, and, I mean, right from the beginning, it's obvious that Dorf is looking for something. Sorry, Marco is looking for something real. And you see his daughter. And it's obvious his daughter is real. And she's right there. And I, I don't know, It's maybe it's about him trying to recognise that, mm. that the thing he's searching for is right there. And it, sound, it sounds a bit trite to, to sort of lay it out like that, but it is very mm. deft. And I think it goes a bit deeper, deeper than that. I think there's also, too, that the fact that his daughter is with him in a lot of these situations, like the whole Milan episode and in the hotel and interacting with, you know, walking to his hotel room and finding women and things like that. It's, it's almost like his daughter is always there to contrast against the world he lives in. And he's suddenly realising that this is what's real. What I'm living is ridiculous. Mm. And the film contrasts um, Elle Fanning, Cleo, the daughter, um, as this beautiful... She's she's preteen, or she's just on mm. the cusp of mm. becoming a self-conscious teenager, but she's not. She's still childlike. She still plays. She's still... Even though she's kind of mature, she's still got a real innocence about her. And it counterpoints her with these brassy, blonde mm. kind of... I don't you can't know, tell them apart almost. Yeah. Spray tanned women who throw themselves at Johnny Marco at every point. Mm. She's kind of the innocence. And I mean the moments with her are beautiful. Mm. They're shot in a in a a very a much more sensuous way than the other parts of the film and I'm I'm sure that's deliberate. Mm. She's she's the golden um sort of She's kind of an angel. Really. I do, yeah, yeah, the angel, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Now they go they they go to Italy during the film and one of the things that that made me think of is looking back over her films. She's pretty much, there's almost a different country's sensibility for each of her films. Like Virgin Suicides is very American nostalgic and lost in translation feels Japanese. You know, Mm. she shoots it with that Japanese lens and Marie Antoinette isn't just set in France. It looks French. And when they're in, in Italy, it suddenly made me think of all these, um, uh, a lot of Italian films, which kind of had that evoked that feeling that she was going for of that sort of sparse. I'm just going to point the camera at this thing, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to give it pretty lighting. I'm just going to make it look real and try and evoke that feeling. And I, I kind of like that that she's sort of sort of got that international theme. You know, where mm. are we going to go with the next mm. film? Yeah, she's very global, isn't she? Mm. Well, mm. in her own life, she's like that, yeah. and 
and another one of her themes is is celebrity and the rituals mm. of it and the think the requirements of it and she is a celebrity she travels around the world she lives in paris she you know collaborates with louis vuitton on luggage design she's in in the world of fashion photography mm. music mm. um so this is the world she inhabits and she knows it really well mm. and the yeah, mu- every film deals with celebrity every yep. single one of them mm. yeah and the music and and just you know inappropriate well, not, not so much inappropriate music, but just... Uh, incongruous. Uh, incongruous, that's yeah. the word I'm after. And yet perfect. Like air. In, <laughs> yeah. 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 And like, you know, using air to, you know, the band air to score virgin suicides or having, you know, yeah. Kevin Shields from My Bloody Valentine for Lost in Translation and, you know, all that new wave and post-punk for mm. Marie Antoinette. And Phoenix does the score for Somewhere. Mm. And it's... Uh, I like that she hasn't had a traditional composer. I think that maybe she gets that from her father because, you know, he always seemed to veer towards using pop songs whenever he could. Mm. And, and there's even uh, one of my favourite scenes in Lost in Translation is Bill Murray. Bill Murray's very leisurely kind of um, karaoke version of Brian Ferry's More Than This. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. In the middle of Japan, you know. It's, and it's sort of and sad and longing all, and fun all at the same time. It's... Mm. Mm. And what's the song that Scarlett Johansson sings to to Bill Murray? It's um, oh, I kind of kind of remember it, but it's um, I do like the rendition yes. of Parsley Sage Rosemary and Time in the Bar by that Australian woman <laughs> yeah. swinging her arms around. Is and she putting, Australian? Yeah, uh, she's filling it with you know way too much sincerity than is necessary. But I, I do like you know that music can create sort of a consistent mood throughout her films, and yeah, just I, I think you know four films in, she's got a really extraordinary filmography that feels consistent. And it feels like even though there's, you know, one common theme throughout them, I feel like she really has something to say. And mm. I'm interested in her exploring that more if she has something more to say about it or going off and doing something completely different. Mm. And I like that she, like, a lot of, um, I think because a lot of female directors are forced to kind of take what jobs they can get, uh, end up having very kind of, polymorphous kind of filmographies mm. like you know it's just basically kind of journeyman type whereas Sophia's and part of this too would undoubtedly be one because of her own strength and will as a filmmaker but also the fact that she's got an enormous shall I say godfather hey. um, <laughs> is that she is an auteur she is mm. all of her films have a distinct style it's a, and and that's it's so great to see a female auteur who is as mm. yeah, as, as as much of, of an auteur as, as anyone else in the world, and there are even fewer female auteurs than there are female directors. True. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I really admire her. I, I, yeah. Mm. And it seems like from reading the press notes for somewhere, although she doesn't say it explicitly, it's implied that Marie Antoinette was not a wholly positive experience for all the glitz and glamour and the huge budget and and the constraints that put on her were not something she wanted to do. Mm. next time and this film is her saying this is what I want to do um, in reaction to that and go back to basics and make my film um, even though I didn't think Marie Antoinette came across as a standard studio picture with without an authorial no. voice mm. um, so yes yeah, she's she's obviously a very strong um, filmmaker but the interesting thing is when you see her I don't know if it's it's kind of okay to talk about how a, a filmmaker's persona, but her persona when she's interviewed or when she talks about her work is so modest and sweet and gentle. She mm. doesn't come across as, um, you know, this kind of gung-ho, willful young woman who's just going to do what she wants to do. She mm. does it in a very kind of, um, I don't know, considered and gentle way, and that's that's quite nice to see someone... 
Absolutely. making their mark in that way. Yeah. I agree. An excellent choice in director. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you very much for joining us, Thank Rochelle. You Thank so you so much, Rochelle. It's been a pleasure. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next month. Yes. Uh, everybody keep watching. Have fun. Listening. <laughs> no, watching. Films. Oh, that's, th- those things. <laughs>